So if you don't know very much uh, about the book of Joel, then you are not alone. According to BibleGateway.com, this is one of the least clicked-on books of the Bible. Uh, It is a strange book. This is a very strange way to begin a series on it, because we're not even in it. And all I want to do this week is, is say why it is I believe we should read this book right now as a church. So uh, at the beginning of the year, we, we sat down, we did what we always do, we started some long-range planning about the year ahead, and we prayed and we asked, what is going on in the world around us? And what is going on in our church? And what is going on in the individual lives of the members of it that we need a book of the Bible to address this year? And at the beginning of 2022, there was a lot of hope, I think, a sense that that COVID was almost done, and travel had opened up, and schools had opened up, and the economy had opened up, and things were on the up. And so when we sat down, we wanted to finish the church year, which we're doing right now, before Advent, with a a kind of uh, a few, we made it, kind of a book of the Bible. Or or maybe even a, hey, things are really good, kind of a book. And twice this year, we went so far as to sit down and design a whole sermon series exactly like that. So we we sat down in March, and we planned a series from the book of Ezra, the whole thing, like uh, the readings and the link readings and the titles for every sermon and the the little skeleton outlines of every talk and all of the rest of it. And then we tore it up, and in July, we sat down and we designed one from the book of Nehemiah. Uh, Both of those books, Ezra and Nehemiah, they talk about how the people of God had come through a crisis and were experiencing renewal at the end of it. And then the summer progressed. We started to ask a new question. What if the crisis is not done yet? What if we're not through it? I think we've only just begun to see the side effects of some of the things we did to keep us safe. And uh, there's now an economic crisis compounded by an energy crisis. There's a military crisis, an addiction crisis crisis. There's an education crisis. We absolutely have a communication crisis, do we not? All all at once. All these crises at once. With the passing of Elizabeth, the Queen, the Duke of Lancaster, uh, many have said it just feels like an era has come to an end at this point, as though, you know, everything she represented has, has died. And a time of stability, a time of civility, it's kind of drawn to an end where opponents sat and dined together. Now they screech on the internet. And for many of us, there's a personal crisis as well, I think. Uh, Lots of us have lost loved ones in the last few years. We've lost jobs. And uh, as a group, as individuals, as families, we've... We've suffered in all sorts of ways. It feels like there's even more yet to come right now. Uh, like, the, like the nation is braced for more trouble. So we started to ask a different question, and the question is this. Do you really have to wait until a crisis has passed in order to be restored by God? Uh, or can you actually draw near to God at the lowest point? Can you get near to God when everything has failed. The book of Joel, 100% says, yes, you can. 
It says, in fact, the first green shoots of revival or renewal will often poke up through the dry ground in the midst of the crisis, not when it's all well, but long before it is well. Renewal comes. So here's the setting. In Joel, there was no pandemic, but there was a a regional crisis for sure. Uh, Their crisis, I would suggest from an experiential level, was even worse than the ones we've been through. And in this book, we're going to see that their land was devoured by swarms of locusts that came through. There is going to be an extraordinary amount of locust talk for the next 10 weeks. I just got rid of a stink bug from those Venetian blinds over there. Um, You know, the Lord could have provided a locust as an illustration, but it would not be enough. There were loads of them. And we're going to hear Joel speak as much about the esoteric eating habits of a grasshopper uh, as we've been talking about how spike proteins bind and viruses spread. It's, it's like the whole nation became lay experts on a hitherto obscure branch of science, and it was all they could talk about, because all they saw was bugs and what they did. Their world was dominated by disaster. The locusts sweep through and they trash the fields. And as the economy starts to tank and begins to collapse, the religious leaders are in the temple scratching their heads, starting to wake up and realize soon, too, worship will be destroyed, at least as they knew it. Because the old covenant priests needed the produce of the land in order to do temple worship. And how do you do temple worship without animals and bread to offer? And without fire, without wood, without oil in order to make the offering? What are you going to do in an old covenant system that is premised upon the burning of material things if you've got nothing to burn or burn them with? What are you going to do? Facebook? Like, we can't even make it work most weeks. Like, it works fine on a Monday. Come Sunday, the enemy sneaks in and trashes the microphone, and we're left scratching our heads. Why (laughs) is it like this? I do not know. And you can almost imagine the priests in the temple scratching their heads and saying, what are we going to do? The economy is in free fall. Worship is destroyed. And just as they're getting their heads around these sort of twin crises, another one comes along and the the, the bugs start to devour the granaries and the reserves and even people's own little jar on a shelf at home. The bugs crawl in through the windows and into beds. And in that moment, a, a corporate crisis becomes personal and comes home. Cascading crises for the people of God. That's the sermon next week. And then something that occurs that turns it all around. A new mode of worship sung in a minor key. They begin to lament. They gather. Core people gather. Peripheral people become core people. They're there more often. New people become core people. They turn to God for the first time. The crisis draws all sorts of people in, and worship gets more real, not less. 
in this crisis. Just like we've seen, the church grows in a crisis. And they sing a new song. It's not a song of joy. It's not the old familiar tune. Can we do that one again? It's not glory and trumpets. It's not a doxology. It's lament. It's a song of complaint. It's like the one we just said in the psalm, in the sequence hymn before the gospel reading. Uh, It's a song of doubt. It's a song of fear, of frustration, of disappointment with God and all of those negative things. A little tiny bit, a song of repentance. And even smaller still, a song of hope. So before we begin uh, the book of Joel next week, what I want to do is just take a few moments to, to look at lament and suggest to us why it is I think we need to sing one. Let's, turn, let's open our Bibles. Let's turn together, please, to the book of Lamentations. So there's a whole book of them. We're in chapter 3. It's a slightly less popular book than Joel, if you can believe it. And... Uh, There's only eight more less popular books in the whole Bible. Maybe we'll do them soon. It's a crisis song. It's not jolly. Lamentations 3, verse 16. He, this is God, he has made my teeth grind on gravel. There's a visceral image that God, in the place of food, has given me to eat a bowl of dust. I believe Gwyneth Paltrow sells this on our website as a health cereal, (laughs) along with a rather disgusting candle. Uh, Most people, normal people, know that it's gross, and they don't buy this stuff. Uh, I don't know what's the matter with the woman. You know at that moment when when you're eating a piece of fruit and you crunch upon a seed, and like it goes, and your whole jaw just becomes this amplificatory device, and your skull rattles. You know that thing when... You go to a fancy restaurant and chef has not prepared the mussels properly and there's a bit of sand in there and the grit crunches and the bones judder. This visceral image describes their food. There were reports just this week following the floods in Pakistan of children eating mud in place of food. And those children had that for a meal. Imagine if that was your child. If your crisis was so great, that's what you had to serve. Dreadful. Verse 17, my soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. The suffering of the body affects the mind. And the suffering of the body and the mind affects the soul. There's a holistic level of suffering now within each person and within the whole body of of the people. I'm starving in every way, goes the complaint. I cannot even recall the good old days anymore. And so I say, verse 18, my endurance has perished. I've given up on life. So has my hope from the Lord. I have given up on faith. This is a classic opening statement of lament. So many of them, they go this way. Uh, I, I am out. I am done with God. I've had it with Christianity. I'm done with church. Stuff it. And probably stronger words. The, the scholar Walter Brueggemann, uh, not my man on every point, but he's brilliant on this stuff, says that uh, this part of the lament functions almost like a legal complaint. 
uh, this is like a particulars of claim or, or like an indictment. It's like the uh, prosecutor's opening speech and God is in the dock or even in the stocks as we just pelt him with things. Uh, it, this is like we are accusing God of having failed right here. Now, if you were speaking to a non-Christian friend this week and they say, what are you talking about in your church right now? And you say, well, pastor's up there talking about how rubbish God is. They're going to think that you've lost the plot, or I have. And uh, even Christians find this idea really weird because we don't read this book, so we don't know about it. This is a shock or a surprise that we might speak to God this way. Yet Scripture models for us how to do it. So why? Why does God tell us to speak to him like this? The answer is because we all feel it sometimes, don't we? If your prayers have gone unanswered and in spite of prayer, your situation has got even worse, you will think at some point, where is God in all of this? Where is he? And if you don't vocalize that thought, in church, what that means is a place of greater honesty for you is going to be somewhere else. It'll be your kitchen table or your dog walk or your dance class. It'll be your moment at the water cooler at work or likely in the bar afterwards when some secular friend says to you, how you doing? And finally you admit, not too good actually, not so good. And if what you say here in church on a Sunday morning is, I'm fine, because I have to say that, because, you know, it's church, then what you will do is you'll worship in this building as the hypocrites do, with one hand in the air and one with your fingers crossed behind your back. A lying worship. From that place of fake worship, plastered on smile, everything is awesome, the Lego movie tune, if uh, that's what we might sing later. Uh, we won't, I promise. Uh, everything is awesome. If that's all we ever sing every week, like that's mad. We're going to give up on church. We'll likely give up on God. We have to get real in church. This room, this body of people, this lively group has to become our place of the greatest authenticity, not the least. God is big enough to hear from you what he already knows you think. He will listen first. He will not interrupt your prosecutorial speech. That one you have worked on oh so hard to get word perfect. He will not interrupt and from there, having listened, he'll invite you into a dialogical exercise. He will invite you to converse, to think out loud, to get it out, to blurt it out, to say whatever's in there. It doesn't have to be well-formed or eloquent or whatever. He's just going to say, get it out there, tantrum. Get it out, blurt it out, then we'll sort it out, says the Lord. I will resolve your complaint but let's hear it first. The lament moves on. Verse 19. 
Remember my affliction and my wanderings. My soul continually remembers it. I remember it, God. Why can't you? What's the matter with you that my knowledge and recollection is greater than yours? And the sooner is that said, blasphemy. The emotion shifts. Verse 21, but this I call to mind. There's a second thought now. Have you ever had a fight with someone and said a bit too much? Have you ever had a scrap at home and uh, fought a bit too mean? One or two blows that were a bit too low? Maybe been a bit too loud, a bit too coarse, a bit too strident, a bit too good at finding the soft spot and turning the knife right there? Ever gone away from that fight and just second-guessed some of your remarks a little bit and thought to yourself, that was ugly. Have you ever gone away from an argument where you've said a bit too much and then spent the next hour or two of your life reasoning with yourself about why actually it was justified to say that thing? Well, she had it coming. If she only knew how I was feeling after all that I've been through, I've said this before, I've been there before, I've said this, oh, you know, I've said this before, I've said it nice and I've got to say it nasty. And if they knew, if they were better, they would have... Like that. Have you done this? Have you thought like that? If so, clue. We don't normally do that unless we're also just a little tiny bit, how to put this gently, wrong. Now, it's completely normal when aggrieved, when upset, to exaggerate your case. It's completely normal to overstate your points, to get loud, to interrupt, to blurt things out, to just get it out there, kind of vomit uh, with rage. It's normal to interrupt. It's, it's normal to say a bit too much in a fight and regret it. It is completely normal, actually, if you are at all self-aware as things settle down to ask yourself, did I go a bit too far? Did I maybe just maybe overlook one or two things in this argument. The lament goes on. I do admit, my understanding is not always perfect. Like, I do forget one or two facts. There are one or two little things from my perspective that maybe someone else would see a little bit differently from theirs, I suppose. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Verse 22. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. We say this at every single funeral. We're going to sing it in a few moments' time. And if you're an underliner, the word mercy is the key thing. If you don't quite have the guts to use a Bible as it's intended to be used, you can underline the word mercy in the bulletin instead. Uh, but I do commend to you the defacing of Holy Scripture. Uh, it's a great way to learn. And what is, uh, just buy a new one, all right? If your Bible runs, if you fill it up with notes, just buy a new one. It's all right. Uh, mercy. Key term. If you've got one underlining in your whole Christian faith in you, and then you oof, just do this one, mercy. Because what is the one thing God always does? What is the one attribute of God that we always see over and over again? It is that he forgives. 
It is that God does good things to us even though we do bad things to him. We crucify him. Turns out he chose the cross for you. We kill him. He gives us eternal life. We sin. He gives us grace. So if God is a God of mercy, who does good things for us, even though we do bad things to him, perhaps the crisis is not a failure of his character or a failure of his ability, but actually an opportunity to return. Do you see how being honest about your grief enables you to be honest about your needs? Verse 24. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. Hope is renewed in the crisis. When all these things in which we've placed our trust have been burned away, they've been exposed as what they are, temporal things. When people have died, and money has gone, and health has fled, and all these glorious things that we worshipped have been devoured by the bugs, finally, when it's all gone, right to the ground, then we are able to return. And the lament goes on, verse 40. Let us test and examine our ways and return to the Lord. Verse 55, I called on your name, O Lord, from the depths of the pit, from the lowest of the low. And you heard my plea. You came near when I called on you and you said, do not fear. Verse 58, you have taken up my cause, O Lord. The accused now advocates for you. Verse 59, O Lord, judge my cause. The accused is now the judge. He finds for you. And who is the one who is adjudged? Who is the one that bears his wrath? None other than he himself. God places himself in the dock and remains on the bench and pronounces a curse upon himself so that we can go free. What a thing. All this hope began with an outrageous, shocking, and brutally honest complaint, and it is matched only by an equally outrageous, shocking, and brutal grace. We need to lament. Writing in the 1980s, the scholar Walter Brueggemann said, the church has lost this whole mode of worship. We just do not lament anymore, he said. And he he warned the church. He said, this is costing us intimacy with God. This stiff upper lip, this plastered on smile, this honesty in the bar and dishonesty in the pews is costing us intimacy with God. Very few contemporary songwriters are leading us to lament. One or two are getting it right. The Gettys and the Redmonds are getting it right. And maybe there are more getting it right, but we don't know about it because it doesn't go viral, it doesn't spread, it's not popular enough for us to know about it. 
There might be wonderful laments being produced in the world right now. The black church laments. But, you know, meeting with Robert this week, uh, just to talk about music a little bit, planning the music out, uh, you said to me, didn't you, just how difficult your task is right now to, to, to do this. And uh, Robert said to me, if we did a sermon series on grace or on power or love or something like that, we'd have thousands of hymns to choose from. If we did one on power and love, we could do Frankie Goes to Hollywood. I like that. There's hardly anything on lament. Like the church is having to turn to secular music because we're not writing uh, the songs of God. Now, we listen to K-Love, and this is not a diss on K-Love. I I do recommend K-Love. It's wonderful. If you go to Mr. Tyre, he will tune your radio to K-Love for you because he's a believer. But uh, he's not called Mr. Tyre. He's called Mike. But uh, if you go there, uh, K-Love is always on. Uh, K-Love's great. Not a diss on K-Love. Positing encouraging K-Love, it's great. But I do wonder uh, how a radio station would do if it were premised upon the book of Joel. Uh, You know, negative, discouraging, J-Love. Kind of a jingle, J-Love. Like, it's it's harder, right? It's not easy listening. It's not good. I've embarrassed my wife with that song. Uh, Yeah, there's there's a reason why they don't ask me to do jingles for the radio. Uh, it's really hard work to lament. It's exhausting to grieve. Uh, it's not easy listening. Uh, it, it is in this sermon series. It's going to be like crunching on a bowl of gravel sometimes, I'm afraid. Not easy. It is deeper, though. It is certainly real. And I want to say to you, we, we cannot only talk about good things all the time. We can't only talk about how great everything is. If your life is falling apart right now, then you will eventually give up on that kind of a church. And you may even eventually give up on God himself. So we're about to embark on a really difficult exercise. This is not baby food. This is not mother's milk. This is raw steak. This is is an actual cow that we're going to eat full with, like, the hooves still on. It's, 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 a, it's a tough meal that we're going to serve. But if you're suffering, you should ask yourself, does my church have anything at all to say about it? Or shall I go to Moe's Tavern and speak to that bloke at the end of the bar? And if your church does have something to say about lament. Then there's a follow-up question, can my church train me how to say it as well? The book of Joel says 100% yes. And uh, indeed, the first green shoots of, of renewal start to emerge in the crisis for the people of God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, uh, I pray that you would show us how to lament Make us aware of our need for it and lead us into this dialogical exercise that begins with complaint and honesty. And uh, Lord, as we get real with you in this season, would we in in our own hearts see the first green shoots of renewal? And from there, would we as a body experience a corporate renewal? Would a revival take place? God, would you revive this town and this 
city and this land because we got real. And of course, because you have the answer. In Jesus' name, amen.